This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are interviewing Shahrazad Khan, who is a 28-year-old Pakistani-Canadian master's student studying history with a specialization in women and gender studies at the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada. Her research focuses on the intersections of gender, sexuality, and imperialism and race in Victorian literature. So welcome, Shahrazad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to I was going to say come and talk to us, but virtually us remotely. <laughs> I think I think this might be our first podcast over three nations. Oh wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, so we wanted to bring in lots of other voices this season, particularly because we are trying to push against the sort of typical emphasis on white writers and so like metropole writers and think about what work was happening in the world outside of the sort of core of empire. We're really sort of lucky that at the same time that we're starting this series, this really important piece came out called Undisciplining Victorian Studies by Chatterjee, Christoph, and Wong, who argue that Victorian studies stands in a special position, and I'm quoting directly here, it is one of the most enduring bastions of the fantasy of an unmarked universality. By this we mean it is emblematic of a broader ideological effort to demarcate the racial from the non-racial, as if such a category could exist. So they released two kind of versions of this, one for the public and one for Victorian scholars in particular. And their longer article is really about what we as scholars of the 19th century can and should do to push back against this assumption of sort of white British writing as a universal encapsulation of culture. So one thing we're asking all of our guests this season is what can the average reader or enthusiast of Victorian literature do to push back against this fantasy of universality in their own reading or watching if they're sort of the um, adaptation watcher, what can they do out in the world to push back against this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I read um, that article and it was brilliant just in the way that, that they laid out, you know, how Victorian studies has kind of just left out these discussions of race and imperialism, especially when it comes to literature, I think, which is kind of appalling considering that the, you know, the Second British Empire started to peak in the Victorian period. Scientific racism became prevalent, especially with uh, Darwin, but you read most of Victorian scholarship and 
it doesn't really sew up that much. And they were really on the mark when they said that, you know, we think of the Victorian period as this place of unmarked universality as if, um, you know, it was just an undifferentiated kind of sea of whiteness and not even commenting on what that means. I think when you're out in the world and you're reading Victorian literature, the authors actually gave a few really good suggestions. Um, the first was to not read the novels as if they're non-racial, even if you know race isn't mentioned or the empire isn't mentioned. Um, they're still constructing a sense of English identity and um, especially towards the end of the century. But before that, too, they're also constructing a racial identity. Uh, you know, scientific racism didn't just racialize people of color, it racialized white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty significant, especially when you consider how they used um, their ideas of whiteness and superiority to argue that they were having, you know, civilizing mission um, in the colonies instead of brutally subjugating them. And uh, that ideal is everywhere in Victorian literature at the time. And so to be aware that you're reading um, something that isn't universal, something that is espousing, you know, a certain set of values, a certain uh, worldview that is tied to an imperialist culture. And the other thing is to notice when they do uh, talk about race and they do talk about um, empire. You know, a lot of the times um, when I've been reading Victorian novels for my thesis, uh, I've just you know, being happily reading along and suddenly there's a racist illusion that comes out of nowhere. And uh, so, for example, one of the ones I've come across a few times has been the phrase work like a black person, but they use the N-word. And it would just be in a context of this white character working hard. And, you know, it's just there, it's blink and you miss it. But um, you have to kind of call that racist and think about, you know, how that's reinforcing um, a racist view of Black people. And also, you know, the, these there's an episode... Uh, a chapter in George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss, um, where the heroine Maggie Tulliver runs away mm-hmm. and uh, goes to a Roma camp. And <laughs> it's, it's just a very contained chapter. Um, but see, you know, thinks that she can educate them in English manners and she can, you know, she she tries to educate them in history by telling them how benevolent um, Christopher Columbus was. 
and yeah, and it uh, it isn't uh, mentioned again, but um, the implications of that chapter are are huge in considering, you know, how race was working um, in there. So, and especially not just how that constructed the Roma in that chapter as, you know, um, with these racist stereotypes that they can't be trusted and they'll steal your stuff and, um, but also in how it constructed Maggie as, Mm -hmm. you know, a little white girl who is, you know, educated and refined and superior and what that tells us about um, how Elliot saw whiteness. Um, So, you know, even if it's brief and you need to be aware of that and it, and discuss that and um, pay attention to it. Yeah, that's such a great example. Like, yeah, it. I think it's yeah, the starkness it, of like who. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm just really excited. So my, <laughs> yeah, go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it it is a really good example because, like, Maggie is this character who is set apart from the other white characters in the book. Like, it's not just any little white girl that's going there thinking she can, like, civilise and teach people. It's this one who, in her own world, is coded as this kind of, like, I'm thinking of the words, rebellious. Like, she doesn't fit in. And then she's the one who thinks she has the right to go and tell the people how to live and that her people are, like you say, about... Christopher Columbus being benevolent. Yeah. 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 I think it, yeah, it really illustrates sort of the fault lines of the sort of concept of civilization. Like who gets to be civilized, how precarious it is, and how very much it depends on this very false sort of comparison between an us and them when Maggie isn't even really part of the perceived us, like ever. Mm. Yeah. I, exactly. You know, in the novel, she's described as you know dark and coarse and you know see herself as compared to Doroma but um that that kind of that incident kind of you know reminds the reader that you know even though she's an outsider in the novel among her other white characters she's still English and Mm -hmm. that carries with it you know, a sense of superiority. And I think it's kind of Eliot's way of of uh, reminding her audience of that. I think just to kind of give the quintessential English assignment to sort of, if you, if you listeners want to practice this sort of pausing and changing your perspective in a long form, the sort of go-to is always like, read Jane Eyre and then read the Sargasso Sea and hmm. then think about you know like how much Jane Eyre relies on this character but then refuses to sort of explore the sort of broader mm-hmm. implications of that for every aspect of all the characters lives mm. yeah I mean that kind of reminds me of Edward Said, you know, and culture and uh, what was it? Culture and imperialism. He kind of, 
he reads um, Mansfield Park and he points out that, you know, the head of the family, Mr. Bertram, um, makes his money in Antigua. And, you know, the obvious answer to how he does that is he owns a slave Mm -hmm. plantation. Um, But Austin never delves into that, even though that's how the money is made. So there's this dim awareness of empire, but it's never delved into, but it's, it's there. And I think that's there in Jane Eyre as well, especially um, with Berta, you know, the woman from the colonies who burns down an English home and who's, you know, constantly compared to, you know, a supernatural mm-hmm. being or a demon. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, uh, Bronte kind of juxtaposes Berta and Jane and in that opposition you kind of get Jane's identity too, you know, as this um proper English woman who's, you know, virtuous and everything that Mr. Rochester could ask for. But, you know, Berta's there and then she's gone and her story is never really mm-hmm. delved into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like one thing that I one thing that I would have liked to do if I were Um, teaching more literature courses was pair Jane Austen novels with the history of Mary Prince, who, so Mary Prince was um, born in Bermuda and was enslaved for much of her life, but then um, went to, traveled to England, and because of the laws in England in the 1830s, was able to sort of emancipate herself, and her autobiography is published, um, kind of not ghost written but it's written by people who she stayed with while she was suing for her um freedom and it's just this really so her life overlaps with Jane Austen's life and kind of shows like the world that that Jane Austen's characters um like where their wealth came from right like the the background of those novels mm-hmm. and it puts them in a whole different light but this this is a you know a, a real autobiography that entirely changes the sort of narrative of universality if you read it and then you read something mm-hmm. like any of the Jane Austen novels yeah I think that kind of um work is so necessary in the courses that are that that teach some victorian literature Mm -hmm. um you definitely have to find a way to bring out true um assigning work or readings like that that is so you know where their wealth was coming from or you know what they were um constructing their identities against and yeah, I'm reminded of, I think also in culture and imperialism, maybe, I think it's in, in that work. Said also says, you know, that the novel is an imperializing force. That's mm-hmm. a paraphrase, I don't remember the exact quote, but that that's really stuck with me. Um, you know, kind of a very contemporary example is 
Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story, where she talks about growing up in Nigeria, mm-hmm. and and she's a she's a renowned novelist, but she her first sort of attempts at writing always featured blonde, blue-eyed children who like knew what snow was, um, and she's she sort of dwells on that, like the the novels that she was exposed to really sort of put her into this. I mean, like, assumed a universality, and she was like, oh, I have to write in this mode. This this is the only thing that can exist in the world of novels. And it, she, she talks about how long it took her to sort of get rid of that and begin writing her f- from her own experience and perspective. And, yeah, I think... So I, I, I return to that Said um, quote often, just thinking about the stories we tell or the stories we love and how they're shaping our lives even today and shaping the way we perceive the world. That's definitely true. I was actually doing a research these past few days because I'm working on my introduction. And um, one of my sources, a scholar called, uh, what was his name? Pablo Mukherjee was talking about how um, Victorian British literature was, like the empire, a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it its influence wasn't just contained to Britain. It actually um, was also a spread to the colonies and... Then you also had literature from the colonized that was that were reacting to um, you know their colonizers and their ideas and their and the way that the that British culture was being imposed on them. So yeah, and I think that's a really good such a good point, and it's a really good point for us to talk a bit about what we call this literature because we're all calling it Victorian literature, and that's the accepted. Yeah. Terminology, obviously, that all revolves around the um, Queen of England and the British ruler. Mm. And if we're trying to get away from Britain being the centre of everything, is there a solution? Is there a better word for us to describe what we're doing rather than saying Victorian literature and Victorian history? Yeah, I've been thinking um, about that quite quite a lot because, on on the one hand, it's quite problematic to name an entire time period after a British queen, mm-hmm. you know, an act as if that can encapsulate a time period and moreover that that's relevant to the whole world and to the colonies. Um, and especially because, you know, the British taught that they were doing the colonies a great favor, that they were um, quote-unquote civilizing them by um, enforcing British culture on the colonies, enforcing the English language um, on the colonies, um, English literature on the colonies, um, that, you know, all of this was, you know, a benevolent thing that they were doing, and then to Uh, go back and describe black writers and Indian writers and writers um, from all over the colonies as Victorian kind of feels like it's furthering 
that process. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, writers from the colonies and racialized writers did influence um, 19th century British culture and ideas. And uh, you can't discount them, too. Um, If you do that, then that's just also feeding into colonial ideas about what the Victorian period um, is. So I don't know if there's a solution. Yeah, it's a huge question. It felt a little bit unfair putting it to you because I don't think, I was going to say, I I don't think anyone in this conversation knows the answer why. I don't think anyone yeah, full stop yeah. knows the answer. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know. I think the question about how useful the term Victorian is, how even ethical um, it is, is wider than any of us. I, I do think that, you know, if we try and wrestle with colonialism more and we try and shed more light on... Um, the colonized and we kind of grapple how that affected an imperialist culture we can maybe start to find a solution if we think of think of the literature of the colonizers and the colonized us um, in a kind of relationship but that's kind of also a struggle and linked and influencing each other um but also you know with a pretty clear power dynamic yeah certainly like seeing it more as a dialogue than a Mm -hmm. something imposed on others by yeah 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 i think i i think i included this question not because i was hoping for (laughs) A definitive answer as much as I think it's just valuable for us to be sort of transparently asking this question and mm. yeah sort of thinking through like what are the what yeah what are the pieces of this dialogue and and just walking through them publicly so thank you for <laughs> bravely mm. diving in there <laughs> no problem yeah, and I, I think you kind of touched on it, but it's kind of the more we ask and openly have these conversations, the closer we're going to get to a solution, even if none of us know what it is. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the talking is the important part. So I think there are sort of two routes our conversation could go. We could either dive into talking about your research, or we could save that for the end and talk a bit about Isa Blackton. What would you prefer? Um, let's talk about Isa Blackton. I haven't had time to really research her work yet. Um, I think um, Isa, or her full name was Isabella Jane Blackton, is is quite fascinating um, for several reasons. One of them is actually that um, her early life is in many ways kind of a mystery. So even the date of her birth is a bit of a mystery. We know that she was born on June 30th, but her gravestone uh, lists 1816 as the date of her birth, but her debt certificates um, 
say that she was 55 years old when she died, but she died in 1873, so that would kind of mm -hmm. have to make it 1817. So that's, that's um, in contention. And, you know, her parentage is in some ways also a mystery. Uh, so we know her father was Thomas Bracken, and we know that he served in India, in Calcutta, and we don't know who her mother was. From what I've researched, we kind of guess that um, her mother was Anglo-Indian or Eurasian um, or mixed race, which is a better term, and that her name might have been Blackton, but we actually don't know for sure, which is mm -hmm. quite, quite interesting because, you know, that's the key to um, Isa's heritage and her race. My sources say that she was almost certainly mixed race, and we do know that her contemporaries discussed whether she was East Indian or whether she was from Southern Europe. So they had a sense that she was passing as an English lady, which is kind of interesting to me, um, especially, you know, when we think of the Victorian era as a, as a period of unmarked universality, but how much, how many people were, you know, trying mm -hmm. to pass as white. And do you get the sense that the, um, I guess, that the mystery around her ancestry is deliberate? Or is it just a fact that it's been forgotten or not noted down? Um, I don't know. I don't think it was, you know, something that uh, she really discussed. She mm -hmm. uh, wrote essays and in in a few um, submissions, she went by the pseudonym an English lady, and she said, "I'm proud to be English," which is which is quite interesting mm -hmm. in the way that she emphasizes that. Um, you know, certainly because um, her contemporaries um, kind of noted that. Uh, you know, she, she looked like she was mixed race, um, kind of suggests that she, you know, wasn't telling um, her friends or the people that she met that, um, you know, her mother was half Indian. Um, if indeed her mother was half Indian, which seems incredibly likely. Yeah, again, I think that was possibly a slightly unfair question because I think it is one of those things that, you know, we'll never know for certain. But I was interested to see what your kind of sense of it was. Yeah, I, I, I definitely have a sense that, you know, she was passing. You know, also um, in her work, um, in one of her novels, um, which is the one that I read for my thesis, um, it's called the woman I loved and the woman who loved me. Um, you know, it's it's quite interesting because 
um, the, a large part of the work mm -hmm. is focused on Italy because she lived in Italy. Um, she had a villa in Florence and she was part of a really strong expatriate community um, in Italy. Yeah, that's... Sorry to interrupt. But that's how I know of her, from the expatriate community in Italy. It was actually Elizabeth um, Barrett Browning who, who uh, convinced her to start writing novels because before that she um, primarily wrote poetry and, um, and essays. But um, with um, Barrett Browning's encouragement, she began to write novels and, um, you know, it was published um, with their help and um, their, and they also, you know, were encouraging and also gave her some, some critical feedback on it. Um, and that's essentially how she began to write novels, which was um, primarily, I think, how most people uh, so read her. Have you, um, have you read a lot of her work? And yeah, no worries if not, I have not read any yet. <laughs> yeah, um, I have not read um, too much of her work. I have um, read some of her poetry and I have um, read um, The Woman I Loved and The Woman Who Loved Me, which is a very interesting uh, novel. And quite interestingly, um, the book um, is set in Italy. It's about Italy. A lot of her writing was about Italy. There's only one like significant place where she mentions race, and it's when Blackden references um, a tradition in the East. She says that refers to the singular power of the eyes. Then she says that the Arabs say that when the angels walked the earth among the sons, I'm quoting, um, and daughters of the men, they knew each other in their mortal garb by this peculiar glance. So it's kind of spiritualistic and it's kind of invoking the East um, in that way. And it's one of the only times, you know, that she mentions the East. So you can kind of see that um, she wasn't hesitant to reference um, the East or the colonies or um, other races, but um, she never lingered on it the way that um, she did Italy or the way that, you know, she often kind of gestured to her friends. Um, there's a moment in the novel where Hubert is reading a poem by Elizabeth Bear Browning and just marveling mm -hmm. at how beautiful the line is. So, so she puts quite a lot of her um, personal life and ideas into her writing, but um, in her novels, at least, um, there isn't the substantive reference to her connections to India. 
I love that she's kind of like hyping up her friends in her novels, though. Yeah. 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 She she also wrote a poem about um, Elizabeth Baird Browning uh, meeting George Sand, which is which is very sweet. She was a writer in her own right, but um, instead, uh, she mostly got known through her her relationship to the Brownings and the and the Trollops and the Bulwer Lytons and she kind of doesn't get uh, focused on in on in her own right. I didn't want to mention Bulwer Lytton. Um, it's become a bit of a running joke on the podcast that he's our enemy. <laughs> he's your enemy. I, oh well. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fan of the man. <laughs> yeah. Well, she so knew his son Robert Bulwer Lytton, and. Um, See, they were friends, but um, he came and visited um, her, but he got sick. And uh, see, and I think it was Robert Browning um, nursed him back to health, but uh, he left her very abruptly. Mm -hmm. And see, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning thought that was very rude. I I think I agree with him. So, uh, so she might not have, she might have agreed with you about uh, about the Bulwer Lytons being the enemies. The exception of Rosina, I think. So, um, would you like to talk about your research at all? Um, no pressure if that's something that's, (laughs) (laughs) it's a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, I would if you wouldn't mind. Sure, no, of course not. Uh, yeah, so um, my MA thesis is um, how do how do I put this? Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of like I said, looking at the intersections of gender, sexuality, and imperialism, um, specifically in the context of Victorian literature. You have women gaining more rights like greater access to divorce and property and access to secondary education and careers and and such with this time especially with the rise of the feminist movement um but on the other hand you also have the second british empire um forming and um, britain is gaining more colonies and um it's extending its rule over colonies it already had, like um, in India, where they put mm-hmm. it under crown rule in 1857 after um, the Indian the Indians uh, revolted against their British officers. Um, and especially in the 1880s and the 1890s, uh, you get the period of um, popular imperialism and you also get the rise of eugenics, um, which kind of gave the idea that um, you know if you if you if two white able-bodied um, people get married and reproduce, they can quote unquote improve the race. Where as if you get married to a non-white man. Um, you know, you harm the race because you give birth to a mixed race child. 
Um, so that kind of stressed marriage um, mm -hmm. at a time when it was also being challenged. So all of this context kind of uh, kind of gives rise to a lot of tension in Victorian literature. And I'm kind of looking at how that, how they kind of dealt with that. So that's, that's a fascinating yeah. project. Thank you. That's a really interesting project. Thank you. Do you want to share where our listeners can find you online to keep up with your research or anything along those lines? Uh, yeah, um, I have a Twitter page uh, where I do talk about uh, my research a little bit. It's The handle is um, at Arete20. That's A-R-E-T-E -E and then 20 in numerical numbers. Awesome. And we'll make sure to tag you also when our episodes come out. Yeah, so thank you for giving up your Saturday to come and talk to us. <laughs> It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's feet, and for a story delightedly, why are you single? All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.